KMFM News Center. Welcome to another edition of Money Talk. I'm Neil Kreisel and Diane Duvernay are your hosts every week right here on AM 1290, FM 96.9, and streaming at AM 1290 KZSB. And we're repeated at 11 and Saturdays at 6. We're brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending, whose highly trained and experienced team takes great pride in helping people with home financing, offering competitive rates, and a wide array of loan programs. American Riviera Bank, smart banking for smart people in Santa Barbara, at Figueroa and Anacapa Streets, and at Montecito's Upper Village. At Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm in Santa Barbara, providing its clients with the personal care and attention of a small independent firm coupled with the vast resources of a major financial institution. Good afternoon, Neil. How are you doing today? Well, better since the market uh, closed. Uh, oh my gosh, it's been a roller coaster today. Yeah, so I, I take it you sold Recording all, stopped. all your stock at uh, at eleven o'clock this morning. No, you you know you gotta you gotta hold on for the ride and be allocated properly. Selling at the bottom never makes sense. That's a good point. Just let me know when the bottom is, okay? sell i should i should rephrase selling on a down dip is never the right answer oh okay got that you need to have a good financial planner neil to make sure you know you're allocated properly and feel it's an excellent point so we have with us today which is very apropos given the market an economist right peter rubert our friend from ucsb and he is the executive director of the Economic Forecast Project and so much more. We, last time, Peter, we saw you, it was a full year ago. So welcome back to the show and we look forward to hearing from you. Thanks very much. Glad to be here as always. Thank you. It's uh, been a weird year. It definitely has. <laughs> so Neil, do we have any articles today? Yes, we do. In fact, uh, this weekend, there was a really interesting one in the Wall Street Journal entitled Vanguard forgets the little guy. And um, the article is about uh, Vanguard's target date funds, uh, which are um, uh, tailored for investors in 401ks and other retirement plans. And um, the uh, these funds that Vanguard manages uh, are not for people who um, are investing with uh, non with taxable accounts. And the reason for that, it can be highlighted by what happened this year. Um, Vanguard uh, mostly is in, it, most of its investors are institutional or pension funds. And what, um, what they decided to do is they reduced the uh, 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 fees for, uh, used to be you got a discount if you had $100 million. So they reduced it to go into a different fund that had the same investments for $5 million. So it, the, there was a tremendous outflow of institutions or, or pe- uh, going from the 100 million to the 5 million so they could get lower fees. But in an index fund, when you sell, uh, you need to actually sell uh, to raise the cash and that is taxable income. So what happened at the end of this year, end of last year, is that uh, investors were hit with 15, 20% uh, taxes uh, which was a big surprise, um, and um, it, just another example of how you really have to be careful what you invest in. Wow, that's pretty fascinating that they didn't let those um, institutional clients swap out versus, you know, make a sale and have it be a taxable. That that's crazy. Yeah, and uh, the people are really upset about it. But you know, the, the reality. Rightfully so. Yeah. 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 Um, the next article um, is about uh, SPACs where investors are jumping ship. Uh, and we talked about the performance of SPACs uh, in the last couple of weeks and how uh, most of over half of them are down uh, more than 40% from their initial offering price. But now we're seeing um, investors, uh, which they're allowed to do when a deal is announced, pulling out of the investment. Uh, so that the actual uh, transaction results in less cash to 
the uh, target company. And um, uh, what we have here is, uh, you know, not that surprising, a, um, a situation in which people thought this was a panacea to go public and they're ending up either without, the, without being able to go public or going public with significantly less money. <clears throat> Yeah, this the SPAC deal. The SPAC deals are unregulated, and so really, it's the wild west, and that you're really at the mercy of the people in control of the SPAC as the company, as opposed to the company's management. And you know, it it is a way to have liquid investment into your company going public, but often, or too often, I should say, the company is not prepared yet to go public, and they haven't done the due diligence that you need to to be a successful public company. And that this is just one of those um, examples. You know, it's so interesting. There's been so many articles the last two, three days about uh, the uh, 25 year olds who over the last six months were saying Warren Buffett is, is, is an old man and he doesn't know what he's doing. And, you know, if you look at GameStop at the bottom this morning and uh, American movie uh, AMC, uh, there's been an incredible disaster going on there. And you don't hear from these young kids anymore talking about, you know, how they're going to beat Warren Buffett. And it turns out that uh, Warren Buffett has had a really good year and, and, and they haven't. Um, and that goes to the next article, which is uh, uh, the problem with ETFs, this is in the Wall Street Journal, is bigger is not better. And we, you know, we've talked about Kathy Woods at ARK Innovation Fund uh, over the last few months because she's gone from the best performer ever to one of the worst performers because she basically believed that she could invest in a small number of very, very high multiple technology stocks. But what has exacerbated the problem is, and this is what the article is focused on, is unlike mutual funds, ETFs generally don't close uh, to new investors. And so when someone does as well as ARK, ARK and Innovation Fund has done, money rolls in. And when money rolls in, things get better because she, the, the fund manager can buy more and more of the same stocks in her case. But when the reversal takes place, uh, all of a sudden, uh, she owns the market because she had so much money she had to deploy that in order to get out of some of these stocks, in order to pay off the uh, shareholders who are getting out, it, it basically it, it accelerates the decline. And so, you know, we're seeing um, a uh, co come upness to Kathy Wood, but part of it is not just her, part of it is a structural problem of ETFs getting overbought and then having to sell in order to meet their shareholder demands. However, as a manager, that's one of the things that you need to look at is what percentage of the company are you owning as a manager in the event you do get redemptions, you're not moving the market, consequently moving the stock. And so oftentimes experienced managers then diversify out and buy new companies to the portfolio as to not go over their threshold of their investment, investment plan so that they don't move the market. Evidently, it looks like Kathy didn't have that same um, stopgap in place. So the, the next article is really interesting because uh, it, it's a week and a half old. And um, there was an article today uh, that uh, makes this article uh, not only old hat, but makes me even question what the article is about even more. And what the week and a half old article is entitled, Pension Funds Pump More Money Into Private Equity. And what's happening is pension funds trying to um, increase their returns to make up for shortfalls over the last 15 years have been getting out of common stocks and into uh, private equity because private equity, they believe, is a better opportunity, even though it's, it's riskier. And today, the report was that for the first time in years, uh, the average pension fund is now at 100% funded. So, you know, it's so typical that they're now making risky moves to make up for something that it took 15, 20 years to, to succeed. And now they've increased their risk profile when they really didn't have to. Um, the, uh, the, the final article I have today is, um, again, about two weeks old. And it's really interesting because it, it preceded by like a day the market uh, 
decline that we've seen. And it's buybacks of stock climb to record levels. And uh, with all the cash companies have and some of their uncertainty about deploying it for capital or inventory, um, they are continuing the wave of uh, buying their own stock back. And, you know, if you, uh, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but I know that if you look at historically the performance of companies that bought their own stock back, typically they ended up buying it at a higher price than, uh, uh, than, than the current value. And here, right before the market collapsed, there was an increase in repurchases <clears throat> among stock, among, of their own stock by companies. Uh, you're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 KZSB and 96.9 uh, on FM. And we'll be right back. For prospective homebuyers, one of the most important steps of the loan process is getting clear and honest information from someone who will speak plainly and truthfully about loan programs and options. I'm Kelly Marsh, Vice President, California, of Cornerstone Home Lending, where our highly skilled and experienced team takes great pride in helping clients obtain home financing with honest, knowledgeable, fast, friendly, and efficient service. As a Santa Barbara native who has spent the past 20 years in the mortgage industry and has closed over 4,000 loans, I'd appreciate the opportunity to earn your business and invite you to visit the kellymarshteam.com or call my office at 805-563-1100 to learn more about how Cornerstone Home Lending can help you determine the best way to manage mortgage debt to achieve a more stable financial future. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. California Residential Mortgage Lending Act license number 41DB072220. California Financial Lending Law license number 60DB072528. Loan originator NMLS number 245822. Not a commitment to loan. Equal housing opportunity. It's a fact. Successful wealth management is built on strategies that focus on the big picture, take a long-term view, and establish deep and valued relationships. Hello, I'm Diane Duva, founding partner at Arlington Financial Advisors, Santa Barbara's trusted family guide, empowering you to make more informed and confident decisions. At Arlington Financial Advisors, we bring order and balance to your financial life by monitoring and managing risk so you can focus on your work, family, and enjoying the moment. We are a fully independent firm offering strategic financial planning, estate and tax planning, and private money management. Our plans and portfolios are handcrafted using a rigorous and disciplined approach, supported by a consistent yet highly personalized client experience. Our clients look to Arlington Financial Advisors as a home away from home, a comfortable place to protect what they've accomplished while they prepare for what comes next. Please visit ArlingtonFinancialAdvisors.com or call me, Diane Duva, at 805-699-7300. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending. Since 1988, a mortgage banker and direct lender that believes in providing in-depth loan consulting to its customers in a personalized and honest manner. And we can be reached at 805-564-1290, or you can email us at moneytalk1290 at gmail.com. We might need to change our email address now that we're also on 96.6, right? No, yes, 96.9. Oh, 96.9. I don't even have it down. It's yeah. been, it's such breaking news. So if you're just joining us, we have the pleasure of having Peter Rupert joining us today from UCSB. He is our local economist who can always shed some light on what's going on here in Santa Barbara and abroad. So, um, you know, Peter, I have to say, what's new? What's What's been going on with you this last year? Well, you know, trying to trying to teach online. Um, that was the biggest thing. I, I, I personally think it's a disaster. Um, I think it's a disaster, but I think everybody likes it because the students can be doing 900 other things. Professors don't have to get in their car and go to school. You know, I see reasons why people like it, but I think it's hurt the learning experience, to be honest. I completely agree with you. That's, you know, I think from even when I look at my elementary school children, that's even their perspective of it is that, yeah, it's easier because I can be in my pajamas while I'm doing this, <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm missing out on learning. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And then, you know, we're not going to see the full impacts for a while, right? I mean, but, you know, I think for especially lower income individuals um, who might have had both parents working, who, you know, having a hard time, you know, their kids 
they could easily be a year behind in school. And I think everybody else maybe six months, but you know, that's going to, that's going to play out over the long run. And I think, you know, we have to kind of work a little bit harder in the shorter run to fix that. I mean, you know, maybe have, you know, uh, elementary school kids maybe spend a month in the summer trying to just get back to where they should be at, at this time of, uh, at their age, you know, but I don't know. I don't know. I just kind of worry about it for the future. Yeah. I almost wonder if the, the burden or the brunt of that will happen at the university level where children, you know, kids that are graduating from high school will be that much further behind in terms of their freshman year in college, whether it be at the community college or at an institution such as UCSB, you know, I, I, I think we're going to, we're going to see that. No, I agree. I, I, you know, that's going to be a hard one. Uh, and at the same time, you know, we got rid of testing, you know, so, uh, you know, the SATs, you know, they're no longer required. Um, so I, I, I think those standardized tests, you know, they at least they gave some information. They could be, you know, somewhat biased. Of course, we've, we've all read things about that, but, you know, now that we've lost that, I think that the kids maybe have lost a little in terms of learning. So, you know, as an educator, it is a concern of mine. And I, I think that, the, you know, the public schools here are great. And I think they're going to work hard to, you know, to fix that. There was an article today in, in the New York Times about one of the elite high schools in New York that um, uh, has a shortage of teachers because of COVID. So they're in class, but the students, there was one student quote says, we're all freaked out. We haven't learned anything yet this year. So it, it's not just, uh, you know, sort of the, you know, the, the, the Republican view, we shouldn't make sure that, you know, uh, everything's in the classroom, irrespective of health issues. But if you ignore health issues, you may end up with people in a class, but no teachers. Yeah, <laughs> so no, it's exactly just, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I, you know, my guess is, I mean, UCSB is supposed to be in person starting January 31st. You know, I'm sure there are some faculty who are still a bit skittish about going back. I mean, some of the older faculty may be you know, when you're around 15,000, 20,000 kids moving in and out constantly, I mean, it's, you know, I, I could imagine some of them are going to wait, you know, as long as they can to before they're kind of forced to come back in person. So yeah, I, I can see the shortage. Yeah. So, so, you know, with COVID and the pandemic and how it has really made us reimagine life and often some, some of it for the good and some of it for the bad, you know, I, I'm with you. I'm with your students in that. Sometimes with a a, a Zoom meeting, I'm I'm not going to say I'm not a hundred percent engaged, but I might be sending off an email at the same time. Right. Um, you know how? What has that done to the economic uh, modeling and forecasting, and and how that works for you in terms of you know whether it be job growth or or the private sector or or how how are you factoring in the pandemic basically into your forecasting? Yeah, I, you know, I think I told you before that I, I run the economic forecast project, but I don't believe in forecasting. And I, I said that way, be, way before the pandemic. And, and, you know, the reason is, is, you know, as a quick example, you know, no one forecasts the pandemic. You know, you can pretty much forecast usually year to year GDP growth, you know, that's, you know, you're not off by that much. Um, but, but here, I just saw a you know, kind of a crazy thing, which I used to make fun of, and it just came out for real. And I, I have a graph of, um, if you look at the first, the first four to eight years of a presidency, and you look at job growth, I always just ask, you know, who has the highest job growth? And by the way, it depends on your political perspective, how you answer this. Okay, so I would say, you know, most Republicans answer Reagan, had the highest job growth in, over, his, over his term. Uh, Democrats typically answered Clinton. The actual answer before this year was Carter. Oh, that is interesting. Right? And so, but this is all BS. I mean, you know, a president doesn't start on day one and throw everything out of, of the window and like, right. okay, now here we go, kids. Some presidents start in a recession. So right now, guess who it is? Biden, Biden probably. Yeah. By far. I mean, because, you know, he comes in when no one was working basically, right? We're still in the, in, in, the, in the midst of a pandemic and job growth has come back. So obviously he's going to be the one that, that looks like it's the most, but, you know, are we going to say that's because of Biden policies? Well, none of the policies he really had a chance to put in place were, were there yet even, right? right. So, so anyway, those things are kind of silly. And I, I used to never tell that story 
to students because I didn't want them to think it was real. Even though I was making a joke about it, you know, but I can tell it to you old, old people, you know, I can tell it because you kind of know some things are just phony. Right, right. And so, so how, how long do you, or how long do you think this, the virus is going to affect our economy, both, you know, local, national and global? Yeah, I, I think it's, it, you know, our economy, it depends a, a lot on tourism, as we know, and a lot on leisure and hospitality in general. Uh, and I think there was an article out a, a week or two ago that showed that many cities in the U.S. were back to their original employment level uh, before the pandemic started. We're still not. We're still down, you know, 6,000, 7,000 from our, our peak right before the, the, the recession. In terms uh, of jobs. Pandemic. In terms of employment, yes. And, you know, and especially in, you know, accommodations, that, that employment's still way down. And part of this goes to what Neil was saying. You know, there's just a shortage of workers out there. I've talked to some hotel owners and they're like, I can't open all my rooms. Even though some demand for it, I can't open my rooms. I don't have enough staff uh, to, you know, to fully open. So I think we're still feeling that. Um, now, how much of that do you think, though, is an immigration policy? I, I was speaking with a client today who happens to be of Russian descent. And they say, you know, most of their work and most of the people they they have for helpers and nannies and caretakers and what have you, uh, they tend to hire Russian because they're in that community. And they said no one's coming over. So right. that's the reason why, you know, things have gone up because there aren't any more new people yeah. coming in. Right. A lot. That's true in a lot of places. That's true. Um, I, you know, I think two things have happened. One is, you know, people are still a bit scared. But number two you know, this gave people an opportunity to sit back and say, okay, you know, do I really want to work in the leisure and hospitality business? You know, now that I'm getting higher unemployment benefits uh, from the government during the pandemic, maybe I can sit back, apply for some new types of jobs, maybe get some new skills. And to that, you know, I say fantastic, right? I mean, if, mm -hmm. if you're in a low paying job, you're going to be there, you know, maybe your whole life. I mean, and somebody kind of forces you out and you now you have to look for something better. Yeah, there's some good in this, by the way, in terms of being able to maybe have the time to look for a job where before you just, you know, you had no time or the ability to look. When you put together a macroeconomic model, uh, do you put into your um, assumptions um, an explicit uh, placeholder for certainty and uncertainty? Uh, and, and I'm asking that because it would seem that there's much more uncertainty about some basic uh, economic inputs that we would have thought could be pretty easily plugged into these models that maybe you can't in today's environment. Yeah, I, look, I, I think the pandemic has upset the apple cart in, in lots of different ways. I mean, not just the employment part, but if you look at all this, the supply chain issues, you know, and you see companies saying, you know what, maybe we shouldn't be having everything come from China. Maybe we should be a little more resilient uh, and, and make some stuff here in the U.S. where we can get the parts right away. So I think that's changed a lot of the thinking. Um, do I think it's uncertainty has increased? Right now, I think definitely uncertainty has increased. There's no doubt in my mind that there's a lot more uncertainty out there. And if you look at some of the things the Fed has been saying, um, you know, if you look at their, their, their forecasts, I mean, for a while, they were kind of all over the map. Now they're kind of settling down a little bit. But, you know, do I think inflation is going to be 2%, you know, 2.1% or something next year? I don't see how that's kind of their forecast by the way they're in charge of that stuff right so i mean maybe they know more than i do maybe maybe i said uh, you're listening to money talk on am 1290 and fm 96.9 and streaming at am 1290 kzsb and we'll be right back For prospective homebuyers, one of the most important steps of the loan process is getting clear and honest information from someone who will speak plainly and truthfully about loan programs and options. I'm Kelly Marsh, Vice President, California of Cornerstone Home Lending, where our highly skilled and experienced team takes great pride in helping clients obtain home financing with honest, knowledgeable, fast, friendly, and efficient service. As a Santa Barbara native who has spent the past 20 years in the mortgage industry and has closed over 4,000 loans, I'd appreciate the opportunity to earn your business and invite 
invite you to visit the kellymarshteam.com or call my office at 805-563-1100 to learn more about how Cornerstone Home Lending can help you determine the best way to manage mortgage debt to achieve a more stable financial future. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. California Residential Mortgage Lending Act license number 41DB072220. California Financial Lending Law license number 60DB072528. Loan originator NMLS number 245822. Not a commitment to loan. Equal housing opportunity. When a bank is owned by the community and invests in the community, it answers to a different call. It's personal. It's driven by your needs, not ours. Welcome to American Riviera Bank, based right here in Santa Barbara with branches in Montecito and Goleta. Our customers know us for personal service every day, every way. You can bank on us. Bank on us. Bank on us! American Riviera Bank. Bank on better. Part-time job, full-time hustle, all-time Shiro to all of us. You nurture, we listen. You teach, we thrive. You lift our spirits, but we've got to lay down the truth. It's time for you, our Shiro, to stretch for the stars. Start saving more for retirement now so you can feel prepared and live your life to the fullest. Get free tips to help boost your retirement savings now at aceyourretirement.org Shiro. A message brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. So, Peter, Peter, before the break, we were talking about, you know, obviously the pandemic and the coronavirus and how it's going to influence us. I guess the question is, do you think it will have long-lasting impacts? I know we talked about the education factor. But beyond that, in terms of maybe monetary policy or government intervention, it seems to have set a precedent for large sums of stimulus that we've never seen before. I can't help but to think of, you know, in the early 2000s, you know, the Fed moving interest rates was what we all came to accept, acknowledge and think was normal. Now it's the Fed buying hundreds of billions of dollars worth of bonds. And now we all think that's normal. When they say they're going to start tapering, people get concerned. Whereas it should, it, they, they shouldn't be pumping that much money into our economy. So what do you think the long-term ramifications of that is going to be? Yeah, I, I, in terms of monetary policy, I, I don't think we're going to see that going forward. I, you know, we, ha- we did it during the Great Recession, uh, pumped in a lot. That was a much, much different animal, I think, because, you know, if you look at how long it took us to get back to, say, the, the employment level before the Great Recession, you know, it was like six, six years. It wasn't like six months or, you know, so, so right. you know, this thing, this thing dipped really, really fast, came back pretty fast. Now, you know, I'm kind of a believer in, you know, I don't think the government knows more than the Neil, you know, um, you know, nobody or, or knows Diana, more than well, you. I know. I know. <laughs> It's not a high bar, (laughs) (laughs) but, but, you know, what I mean by that is, you know, uh, I really don't believe that, you know, this kind of stimulus, this, this massive amount of stimulus, you know, really helps the economy. I think it helps in a really, really short time period, perhaps giving people an opportunity to stay afloat, businesses to stay afloat. Um, This was especially bad, right? The pandemic was the government shut people down. It wasn't a recession that said, look, your business wasn't doing so well anyway. Now you've lost business and now you're out. I mean, that's right. A, it wasn't that's, ringing out business inefficiencies. It was not. It was not. It, it can't. It closed everybody, you know. So if a government's going to close people's business, I think it's their responsibility to help them out. Right. I, right. If your business that makes closes, sense. if your business closes because you're a bad manager or that no one cares about your product anymore, I don't see any role for government in that. You know, so I don't think it's going to change long run uh, monetary policy. I think that, you know, their tools, I mean, they are going to be tapering. Now, will they get back to an $800 billion balance sheet? I doubt it. You know, is it going to be 5 trillion or 6 trillion or 7 trillion? I think they've talked a little bit about that. And, and some say it doesn't matter very much, but it's not the Fed's role to, in, in my view, to stimulate the economy. I mean, it just, you know, it's printing money and the treasury, you know, buying things, 
you know, that's debt that, that we're going to have to pay back. And what I tell my students is, you know, we're now at a debt level, you know, higher, pretty much the highest we've ever been since World War II. Um, but, 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 but we're but over a hundred percent of GDP. Yeah, but yes. you know, but you know, one of the problems is the other part of uh, the tools that we have, fiscal policy, ha has basically been uh, uh, sidelined because of the political uh, discord in Washington. So, um, you know, if we had a government that was willing to work together we could supplement or uh, change the, 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 the requirements to, to rely only on monetary policy and use fiscal policy more appropriately. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a you know, that is also very tricky, I have to say. So, there, so a lot has been done on that. And so, you know, if, and it's, it's, it's not a game of chicken exactly, but if the Fed knows that the, that the, the fiscal policy is gonna be doing something, then the fiscal policy can actually be manipulating the Fed because they know if they do something, the Fed has to, somehow probably react, right? So it's this game between the Fed and the, and the Treasury that you know I, I don't see much good in uh, in going down that road. You know I think the you know what what the Fed's you know mandate is from from the original intent back in 1913, you know it's to you know kind of control interest rates, short term interest rates, to make sure that they're stable and to make sure that. You know the economy is running how it can run. It says nothing about stimulus. What it says is set up the structure so that the economy can just roll along. So, and Diane's right. You know we've never seen the Fed you know buying this much you know mortgage-backed securities. You know bond. You know they had a their old balance sheet was eight hundred billion dollars. Seven hundred and sixty billion were uh, short-term treasuries. That was it. That was it. And a little bit of lending to financials. But you know outside of that. You know the Fed worked pretty well. Um, the economy worked pretty well. So I think that once we get into like you know when's the time to do stimulus, whether it's the fiscal side or or the or the monetary side, you know, I think what you do is you set the structure up so you can let business perform and help the people that need help at the at, you know who've lost their job and that kind of stuff. But pure stimulation, I'm not I'm, I'm not a fan of that. So, so when you happens... when you when you look at students that come into the classroom for the first time, I would imagine 10, 15 years ago, some of them were looking for jobs that would help them uh, in the stock market, investment banking firms. Is there now a uh, change in attitude among young people that they don't, they don't really believe that that is going to be a successful venture? You know, you, maybe you're better off if you want to do that, you know, worry about Bitcoin, but the traditional right. economic modeling may not really be a place to focus on. Yeah, I, you know, I, you do see from time to time that, you know, people are like, hey, you know, I know these people that, you know, put money in Bitcoin, got made 40% or they, you know, whatever. Um, a lot of our undergrads, by the way, in, in, in econ, and we have one of the rare programs where we have a large accounting emphasis. And so I would say, you know, we have the most majors on campus and probably two thirds of them go the accounting route. And those kids are like, they're in it for the long run. You know what I mean? They're kind of like, there's stable jobs out there. You know, this is something that we can do, that we can move ahead. You know, so a lot of them do that, but a lot of them, yeah, come to me all the time. You know, it's like, you know, how do I, you know, make an NFT or something? <laughs> it's like, right. um, you know, you know, like Warren Buffett and these others said, you know, like sit down and, and have a plan and, and work hard. And so, you know, that's, I, I, I see it all the time that people do want to try to get rich quick, but that hasn't changed, right? Everybody's always had a get rich quick scheme somehow. Um, so I don't think students have changed that much. So back to the Fed, when those securities mature, where does that money go? to their balance sheet. And then at some point, how, how do they wrap that down, wind that down, right? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the mortgage-backed stuff, right? That I think, you know, what they're holding, what the Fed is holding, I think the average maturity is seven years or something like that. I can't remember the, the exact number, but when they roll off, they roll off, right? They get paid back. Um, and, you know, the Fed will, you know, maybe sit on the money for a while, I think. Um, and like I said, is it gonna go back to 800 billion? Probably not. They'll sit on it, sit on it. I mean, and in some sense, it really doesn't matter what the Fed has, right? I mean, true. It, it I was just thinking maybe it could do something to the to the effect of pay down the uh, 
the national debt in some way, shape or form. Like, could that happen? I guess is my question. It's kind of like I'm always singing the song of, uh, you know, okay, California has a budget surplus. How about we put it into the unfunded pension liabilities? Right, right. No, exactly. I mean, they probably won't do that. (laughs) That's again, that's kind of not their role. Um, And, you know, to be independent from the fiscal side is the key thing that a central bank should be. And I happen to know that because I was just in Turkey um, and, you know, the exchange rate, it was really good for me, by the way, because the Turkish lira was, when I got there was about eight Turkish lira per dollar. And in a month it was 17. So oh, their wow. whole monetary is just collapsing because of, of just a bad president making silly, you know, uh, monetary policy. He fires his, uh, chief of, uh, uh, the head of the central bank yeah, once a year. Oh, wow. So there's there's some some good consistency there then, right? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9. And you'll and we'll be right back. For prospective homebuyers, one of the most important steps of the loan process is getting clear and honest information from someone who will speak plainly and truthfully about loan programs and options. I'm Kelly Marsh, Vice President, California, of Cornerstone Home Lending, where our highly skilled and experienced team takes great pride in helping clients obtain home financing with honest, knowledgeable, fast, friendly, and efficient service. As a Santa Barbara native who has spent the past 20 years in the mortgage industry and has closed over 4,000 loans, I'd appreciate the opportunity to earn your business and invite you to visit the Kelly Marsh team.com or call my office at 805-563-1100 to learn more about how Cornerstone Home Lending can help you determine the best way to manage mortgage debt to achieve a more stable financial future. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. California Residential Mortgage Lending Act license number 41DB072220. California Financial Lending Law license number 60DB072528. Loan originator NMLS number 245822. Not a commitment to loan. Equal housing opportunity. Come play at Ealing's Park, whether it's by yourself, as a team, with your dog, on your bike, or soaring through the sky. Come play anytime, any day. For over 25 years, the Ealing's Park Foundation has been dedicated to maintaining this beautiful open space and creating a place for the entire community to come play. Ealing's Park is a remarkable environmental example of what is possible when people care about the best parts of their community and take ownership of wonderful facilities like our park. Ealing's Park receives no financial support from any aspect of government and is completely self-supporting. So come visit the park today and support Santa Barbara's largest nonprofit park. Join the many Santa Barbans saying, Ealing's is my park, and make it your park, too. For information, call 569-5611. That's 569-5611. Or visit online at www.elingspark.org. That's E-L-I-N-G-S-P-A-R-K dot org. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by American Riviera Bank, making your life easier with cutting-edge technology, mobile deposits, free use of every ATM machine in the country, and a level of service other banks could only dream about. So, Peter, you know, as we as we look at the inflation, you know, I've been saying since the summer, basically, every time we have headlines in the news about inflation, you're going to see the market, you know, have some downward pressure on it. But don't you think that a lot of the inflation issues really stem from how much stimulus has hit the market and how much money is just slopping around in the economy in terms of cash. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's, you know, going back to what Neil said earlier, I mean, you know, businesses are just cash rich. I mean, they're just, you know, and households pretty much too. I mean, we had, we have more cash than we've had before. Same with businesses and, you know, the money was free. So basically, so yes. And you know, I think for a while, uh, some economist friends of mine who used to work at the Fed, you know, um, kind of towards like the middle of last year, you know, they're like, man, everything we knew about monetary policy, it's just, it just doesn't work, right? All this money is coming in and there's no inflation, there's no inflation, there's no inflation. So, you know, maybe these, you know, you know, sort of new monetarist economists, you know, think they know what they're doing, but it's modern monetary theory. But now it's come... Kind of come home to roost, right? I mean, you just—it's just got to be true 
that if there's more money out there, at some point, inflation is going to start to take off. We saw that during um, uh, you know, the 1970s. Uh, you know, really great story there about William McChesney Martin and Richard Nixon. Um, uh, I mean, and, and, um, sorry, that was Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon. And right after that was, um, uh, sorry, Lyndon Johnson and McChesney Martin. And after that was Nixon and, uh, and uh, Burns, Arthur Burns. And, you know, Nixon asked Burns to keep the interest rates low so he could win the election because he was worried about the economy tanking. Burns kept it low after every economist said it's way too low. They should be raised. They should be raised, you know, much more. And then we get, you know, 16, 17% inflation and mortgage rates of 15%, you know, and it took Volcker to come in and do that. So at some point, the easy money is going to come back as inflation. It just really has to. That's kind of a supply and demand thing. Um, yeah, but, but the irony of that story is that uh, the, the president who got blamed for that was uh, Carter. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. which is sort of sort of you know ironic. <laughs> yeah, circle full back to the judge to your to your story but, at the top of the yes, hour. Yes. But you but but I you know. talk but, but you talk about you know inflation and and uh, the money supply and I, and I agree that that's a critical factor. But what about uh, supply disruptions? I mean, how big a big a factor is that versus just excessive money in the system? Yeah, I, I don't think we know the answer to that, Neil. I mean, I I think. You know, people have said that, and that's what the Fed was saying very early on, right? It's it's the supply chain disruptions that are really causing prices to rise, and and so we call, we're going to call that transitory. And once we we clear up some of these issues, you know, inflation will go away. Um, I that was wishful thinking, in my view. Um, I think. Well, that, I think that they were probably right, but uh, inflation yeah, I mean, was on the heels; it was coming. And yeah. I th- I think what that what story they miss in telling is that some inflation in an economy is necessary so that we don't have deflation and stagflation, right? Um, But it's this yin and yang of what's the appropriate number of inflation and how do they keep it in check? Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, we could have a whole whole talk with some other economists on uh, what the right level of inflation is, but um, uh, almost all monetary economists believe that, you know, we should be deflating. But, but let's not go there. Let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> so do you, do you think what the Fed's doing, though, will will they be able to keep inflation in check? Or do you think we're going back to a time of, you know, 16 percent mortgage rates? I, I don't no, I don't think it's going to go up that high. I really don't. I mean, I think um, there's a lot less political meddling right now. Uh, I think they're, they are worried. In fact, uh, one of the governors from the Fed is coming out here February 24th uh, to hang out with me for a couple of days, and um, Chris Waller. So, you know, I'm going to lock him in a room and, you know, torture him for some answers. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Which you can't give me, you know. <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, so I, I think I really want to hear what what they're saying. I mean, I worked at the Fed for a long time, and you know, the president would come back after the meetings, and you know. You get to hear, you know, what, what every person was saying there, and, and the minutes come out a few months later, of course. Um, but I think, you know, their discussions, at, at least from what I've seen, um, they've always been a bit wary in the last three or four meetings that this was going to happen. Um, and, you know, I think the economy should be ready for it. I think they should be ready for, you know, uh, a, a little bit higher interest rates, sixteen percent, no, uh, but you know, we could see you know, a, a few more increases over this year. Uh, and I think, you know, they're going to, they're going to stop, you know, buying stuff. That's my view. Well, and I think a higher interest rate will be helpful for everybody. You know, there is no safe place for money that you're not being eroded by inflation when interest is 0.01% for your money, right. money market. Exactly. You know, it, it's like I had a client who, you know, had an offer from a bank for a 12 month CD that was going to pay him. 0.05, right? Yeah, like, right? Who would do that? What's the I point? Know. What's the point? I know. I know. And I guess so. Yeah, go ahead. To transition a little bit, what do you think um, employment looks like going forward? You know, as a small business owner myself, we're having an incredibly difficult time hiring people. Where have all the people gone? You know, that's the question I keep asking. What are they doing? Uh, Xbox? <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, 
I, like I said, I, you know, I think people were able to, to sit out a little bit and say, you know, to, and I hope, you know, and to look at their careers and say, you know, maybe I can take some of the classes I haven't taken in the past now that I, I'm out of work and I'm getting some, some unemployment, um, you know, in excess of what I was getting before. You know, that's my hope that. that yeah, but at the same that. time, there's articles that come out every day that say matriculation rates are down at higher institutions, yeah, higher yeah. education institutions. So at yeah. some point, what happens? I know, I know. I, I, well, I don't know. <laughs> but, but look, I, I think in the long run, and, and um, you know, one of my favorite things is um, uh, Adam Ruins Everything. I don't know if you guys know Adam Ruins Everything, but if you Google it and do millennials, he was asked by the ad agency of America to come talk about the different, how different millennials are. And he, he said, they're not different than anybody's ever been. They're all the same. Everybody wants the same thing at the end of the day. They want a nice house. They want to have good food. They want safety for their children, good schools. That's been happening since 1900. And every generation thinks the, the, the next generation are horrible, that they're lazy, they're doing nothing, you know, and he goes back to 1900 and shows all the ads from every generation, you know, in the sixties, it was the me generation. And, you know, it was all about me. And so I don't think things are going to change. I think people are going to go back to work. Uh, there, it might take a little bit for that to happen. I think, I think we've seen already that many places are paying bonuses, mm -hmm. new, new hiring bonuses, um, increasing pay a little bit. I, I you know, so I just noticed that, where was it? I, I, I was going to the hardware store at Miner's Hardware and I passed uh, Panda Express and they like, they raised their, their wages like a dollar, you know, starting wages like a dollar just by themselves, right? It's like, we need people. So Right. And the manager job has, it's funny because the one that I walk by, it keeps pasting over the first number of the manager exactly. job. It was like 55. <laughs> now it's 65. Exactly. I just walked by, it's like 72. Yeah. So, you know. This is where labor is going to start to say, you know, you know, they have some some bargaining power now, but they're going to go back to work for sure. Well, you're listening, you're, you're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9, and we'll be right back. For prospective homebuyers, one of the most important steps of the loan process is getting clear and honest information from someone who will speak plainly and truthfully about loan programs and options. I'm Kelly Marsh, Vice President, California, of Cornerstone Home Lending, where our highly skilled and experienced team takes great pride in helping clients obtain home financing with honest, knowledgeable, fast, friendly, and efficient service. As a Santa Barbara native who has spent the past 20 years in the mortgage industry and has closed over 4,000 loans, I'd appreciate the opportunity to earn your business and invite you to visit the Kelly Marsh team.com or call my office at 805-563-1100 to learn more about how Cornerstone Home Lending can help you determine the best way to manage mortgage debt to achieve a more stable financial future. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. California Residential Mortgage Lending Act license number 41DB072220. California Financial Lending Law license number 60DB072528. Loan originator NMLS number 245822. Not a commitment to loan. Equal housing opportunity. When a bank is owned by the community and invests in the community, it answers to a different call. It's personal. It's driven by your needs, not ours. Welcome to American Riviera Bank, based right here in Santa Barbara with branches in Montecito and Goleta. Our customers know us for personal service every day, every way. You can bank on us. Bank on us. Bank on us! American Riviera Bank. Bank on better. 102 years ago this month, the 18th Amendment went into effect launching what we recall as the controversial Prohibition Era. The unintended consequences were vast flouting of the law by the public and a boost to organized crime. Prohibition was repealed in December 1933. In the no longer dry United States, there are over 1,000 distilleries and 4,300 breweries with combined annual sales of $44 billion per year. Profile America is a public service of the U.S. Census Bureau. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities 
who are seeking long-term financial confidence. So Peter, I have an interesting, I think interesting question. You know, over the last, you know, 100 years, uh, when people made economic forecasts, they were, in a, in a sense, social scientists, you know, looking at the world as we not only knew it to be, but what we expected it to be. Now we have what's called the metaverse coming to your to a station near you. <laughs> and if you look at the metaverse, at least as they describe it today, uh, and I'm not sure it's going to happen, but if it did happen the way that these technologists are talking about it, it's going to change the way people interact with each other. It's going to change the way people operate in the world. That has major implications for economic forecasting, doesn't it? I mean, the answer is yes, of course it does. Um, I, I, but, you know, having said that, I mean, I, I think that, you know, as we get more data, um, we're going to know more so that forecasting might be a little less important. So, for example, you know, why today don't we have just scanner data of every price that's out there? And instead of having a, a personal consumption expenditure index or a CPI index, have the whole goddamn economy. Have every price. It's it's going in the computer every day, right? When 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 there are sales, we can see what's happening to the average level of prices in the whole U.S. So now we're kind of guessing about what in, what's what it's doing, right? We have to wait for a monthly survey to figure out whether or not there's inflation or not. Um, so, but remember, there's been big changes over the last hundred years, right? I mean, they had this thing. You guys remember fax machines? You know, they had you know uh, you know the telephone personal PDAs, smartphones, you know, all those things were supposed to change how, how we really did business. Um, so we are going to get changes in communication and technology. Um, I don't think it's fundamentally going to change, you know, how we forecast. We'll have more data, but remember, most forecasts are based on history. And so we, we don't know when there's going to be a pandemic. We don't know when there's going to be a great, uh, a great recession. And again, you know, if Diane could tell us when the bottom was, she can also tell us where the top was. Um, so no one can forecast that. That's just that's just guessing. Um, so I don't think we'll get better at things like that. So with our very short remaining period, what thoughts do you have on the Santa Barbara housing market? Well, because um, it, it seems unobtainable for everybody at this point, except for the very wealthy coming in from San Francisco, New York and L.A. It's pretty, it's pretty unattainable. Uh, no doubt about that. Uh, you know, I, I tell lots of people in here, you know, you know, let's build affordable housing. I said, people, it's not going to be affordable. Okay. It, you might try to keep it not going up as fast as it is, but in no sense is it affordable, but we, you know, in the long run, we need to build more houses. You know, we, we have to do that. It's kind of difficult in Santa Barbara. Maybe we should rethink that a little bit. Maybe we should think about, um, you know, how to build some smaller homes in, in some areas. I think we need to increase transportation. I mean, not everybody gets to live in Manhattan who works in Manhattan. That you know, they live an hour commute away, but it's really hard. Um, so maybe we could help with transportation and you know some of that stuff. Working from home may help a little bit. People don't have to commute, uh, you know, every day. Um, so you know, I think there's lots of things we can do. There's both short and long run. Um, uh, you know, but if supply and demand just tells you, you know, if you build more houses, we can we can start to inch back a little bit what it'll be. Um, anyway, I'm working on a piece right now on rent control, but. Um, yeah, we're not going to talk about rent control. I'm from we'll New York. We'll have to have you back to talk yeah. about that. So, yeah. Peter, <laughs> so Peter Rupert, thank you so much. You're, you're always our best guest. Uh, you've been on more times than maybe even Diane and I. Uh, <laughs> and so thank you again. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Money Talk and we'll see you all next week. 